Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. We are in a series called The King's Coming as we look at Advent, uh, the anticipation of our Savior's coming, his birth and his coming return. And so this morning, uh, our topic is going to be looking at the second week of Advent, uh, the love of God in Christ Jesus. And our text is going to be uh, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. So you can go ahead and turn there if you desire. Uh, But Advent is uh, a season uh, like no other because of the anticipation that it brings. Um, Advent is a season of longing if you have kids or maybe you just need greater self-control yourself during the Christmas season. Those presents taunt them or you every day that you see them. In our household, it's every day at nap time another one appears and they always see it, right? So it culminates, however, in a uh, an opening, an ex- uh, a celebration of extravagant gifts of, of love. And so it's hard to wait to open those gifts oftentimes, but on Christmas Day, what? It is free game and the chaos ensues, right? So Christmas, however,'s anticipation is ultimately marked by a longing that can only find its fullness in Jesus. It is a longing for something more. And that longing is for light in a near darkness. It is healing in in a woundedness. Sight in an ever-present blindness. Righteousness where there is sin. And ultimately life where death remains. So Christmas culminates the season of Advent in a love that is so extravagant that we struggle to grasp it this side of glory. And that love is none other than the love of God that is given to us in the coming of a king. And so this series is entitled The Coming King. And again, this season of Advent that we are upon uh, celebrates the incarnation God has come to be among us. He's come to be with us in Emmanuel. But also, it's not just in the past, but there's a season of participation that Advent has about it as well. As we are participating in this joy, because ultimately we are still looking forward to the second Advent, that Jesus, this King, will will come again. And so that longing and anticipation that we so feel during this season ultimately is a foretaste of the longing and celebration and culmination that we will have when our king returns again in glory. And so uh, this morning, as we read Matthew 2, I want to direct your attention to this theme of God's love in the season of Advent and how that we celebrate that it has embarked upon us, but also that we participate. What does it look like for us to participate in the love of God in Christ Jesus? So let's turn to the text together in Matthew chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 12, likely a familiar passage to you. 
But let's read together. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it arose, and we have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, uh, yes, to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. And then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warmed in a dream not to return to Herod, they then departed to their own country by another way. This morning, I want to direct your attention out of this text as the main point of focus for us that Christians have an enduring, extravagant love because Jesus has come and will come again. That Christians have an enduring, extravagant love because Jesus has come and he will come again. So it would be helpful to define love since that's the theme's focus for today in the second week of Advent. And is there no term today that is more fluid and amorphic in its definition than love? You see, Love in our day has a, a, an amorphic shape. You can't really nail it down. There, it's, it's perhaps the least precise uh, term that we have in our day. The fact that it is so understood and as so fluid and, and, and fleeting and everyone having sort of their own view of it, we are in great need of precision in what love actually is. Thankfully, the scriptures give us a picture of this because the scriptures tell us that love is self-giving. Love is the self-giving for the betterment of another. It is the unselfish, loyal, benevolent commitment towards another. In short, as the scriptures show us, love is faithful. Love is faithful because it is rooted in the faithful, self-giving God who always keeps his promises. 
And so throughout the Old Testament, what we have is this word um, for God's love that's used to show us how God remembers his covenant and keeps his covenant love with us. And the birth of Jesus shows us this, that God is a promise keeper. His love is faithful to all that he has promised. And he is faithful to keep all of his good intentions towards you and I, despite our sin and our faithlessness. This is love, friends. He loves us all, being being everyone in humanity. That's why we can say you are loved. God has loved all. But he is especially committed to those who love him as his people. He is especially committed to his beloved. And we're going to look at what that looks like specifically for us this morning. But let me give you a little bit of background. Now that we've defined love a little bit from the scriptures, let's look at the background of this text and how it paints for us our response in light of this extravagant love of God. So we have Herod the king. So uh, Matthew starts out his narrative by telling us that this occurs during the time frame of Herod the king. And if you, if you know, Herod um, is somewhat of a difficult uh, person to nail down historically, but what we do know um, because of intertestamental history um, is this. It was an Arabian family that was awarded the rule of the region of Judea because of their allegiance to Roman rule. And so uh, Herod was known for not only his political savviness uh, with the Roman government, but he was also known for his cruelty, and history records him as perhaps one of the most brutish, cruel tyrants that has ever been throughout humanity. As one uh, historian quotes, that he was a brutish stranger to all humanity. You see, Herod murdered members of his own family even if he thought they were to be a threat. And strangely, if you, if, if you follow the scriptures in understanding this, but also history, he strangely is committed and fiercely loyal to things he's not, he doesn't even believe in. And so what we have is this guy, Herod, who would die the same year of Jesus' birth, and upon his death, he, he awards his kingdom and divides it into four pieces and gives them to his sons. So why is that important? Because what we have is that in the backdrop of, God, of the cruelest, most self-serving king of all of Israel's history, we have the culmination of God's promise of a benevolent king who is to come. Is that not good news? That in the backdrop of the most cruel and corrupt forms of government, we have the dawning of the good king. And so Matthew records in that moment the visit of the wise men. Now, again, 
Once again, really great text, right? Don't know much about this guy, don't know much about these guys, the wise men, okay? We know very little about these guys um, except that they came from the east, okay? Uh, And they brought elaborate and expensive gifts to honor the king who had been born. And the extravagant cost and extent of their worship is just remarkable. And yet when they arrive, they're confident of this child's royalty. And their expression and gifts and adornment reveal that he is worthy of all honor and glory and praise. And though they are the least likely in the narrative to know who he is, they treasure and celebrate him most. That's extravagant, friends. And what they do is simply extravagant. And so you're going to hear me say extravagant a lot because because as we look at the manger, there is nothing less than the extravagant love of God poured out upon us and it merits nothing less than our extravagant love in response. And so what they do is extravagant. As a matter of fact, the text tells us it caused an intense emotional uproar. It troubled all Jerusalem and Herod with it. So my senior year in college, um, I remember uh, there was a movie being filmed on our college campus. Uh, It's probably a movie that I would be very surprised if you actually remember this movie. It's a movie called Leatherheads, okay? Yeah, just the response I expected from you, okay? It was sort of a big flop. It wasn't sort of a flop. It was a big flop, okay? Uh, So this was filmed on my college campus, uh, and they shot this this 1920s football uh, scene uh, near our football stadium. And so though the movie was a flop, uh, and you've probably never heard of it again, the activity on our campus was just electric, right? Tigerville, South Carolina is where this is being filmed, all right? The town was our college, okay? 2,000 people. There was nothing anywhere close to where we were in Tigerville, South Carolina, okay? The campus was in an uproar in those days, I remember. And it was especially the case um, when, we, when we began to realize who was on our campus because uh, the actors who were cast in the movie were Renee Zellweger, John Krasinski, and George Clooney, all in Tigerville, South Carolina. Really? And so you had all these students who were, you know, trying to be... Um, you know, in the crowds, in the scenes, and uh, people were sneaking off campus and trying to, like, get their picture taken on the movie sets. There were cops, like, I guess the whole, every cop in Tigerville, South Carolina, you know, we're like probably three, uh, were stationed out at the movie sets to keep the college kids from just breaking in, basically. And so I remember this being quite a big uproar creating on campus. And so when I think about this scene, this kind of comes to mind. We, we tend to think of the coming of the wise men as just kind of three guys coming into Jerusalem, kind of off the radar. Um, 
and not really making much of a fuss, but these men were wealthy foreign authorities. Not only were they foreign, they looked different, they had all that going for them, they're going to draw attention to themselves, but it's likely that their wealth and authority brought a lot of, uh, of an entourage, if you will, with them, right? And so their coming alone caused much of an emotional uproar. But not just their presence caused an uproar, their mission above all else caused an uproar because they were here to find who they called the king of the Jews. And that threatened this guy Herod we're talking about. And not only were they looking for the king of the Jews, they were coming to worship him. And this caused an even more intense, even even, uh, one that brought opposition upon them from Herod and the people. And so, strangely in this text, we have a juxtaposition between the chief priests and scribes who, when they are inquired about the, where the Savior is to be born and they know the details of this, they are indifferent to the reality of it. They are unmoved by it. They, why don't these guys who, above all, should know, they know where Christ is being born, yet they are careless and indifferent. They have seemingly no interest in searching him out, yet up against that we have the wise men and their response to this love. And so I want to show you, they, they show us an extravagant persistence in their love. They've traveled, some scholars say, thousands of miles. Some of the, uh, some of the, uh, the gifts that they bring with them um, give us an indication of the, the origin of their uh, travel may have been even as far as the Arabian Peninsula. So 1,800 miles, perhaps, that they traveled. So extravagant persistence. Uh, they had a, an extravagant cost in their gifts that they gave to this child to show that they were who, who his value was. And then they gave an extravagant testimony to the identity of this Christ in their gifts. And so looking at the response of the wise men, I want us to revel then in what the incarnation shows us about love and what our response to that love is to be, drawing from the example of the wise men. And so I want to show you three um, things that the incarnation shows us about love. This is, uh, number one, is love is enduring because the promise-keeping God has installed his king. Love endures because God's promise has been installed in Jesus. And so let's look at the gifts together. The first gift we are told um, is that they bring gold. Okay, who doesn't want to get gold often? But gold often symbolized uh, tribute that was given to rulers during that day. So gold is the most precious metal named in Scripture. And not only is it given as tribute to rulers, um, it is often used in the worship of God to symbolize purity and the value of God's presence. 
And so the wise man in this gift show us this of Jesus. He is the king of all peoples. He is the king of all peoples. This is no tribal king that is confined to Jerusalem or the temple. He is the ruler of all. This is what we are expecting. This is what we are celebrating. This is what our anticipation builds towards. We have God's promised reign of a benevolent king. And he has arrived. And his throne will endure. And what we have in the birth of Jesus is the full realization of God's love bound up in a manger. And it is in him that God's every covenant promise is yes in him. And so what does it mean for us that in a day where love is something that is so fluid and fleeting and can possibly go cold in an instant, you need not ever question God's enduring love for you. Because the king of all has been installed, and his throne is going nowhere. His love towards you will remain as unmoved as the throne he occupies. So friends, you don't need to fear. If, this, if love is something that will be moved because he will never be moved. And so love endures. But notice secondly, love is always near because God has come to be with us. This is the second reality that love shows, is shown to us in the incarnation. In the Old Testament, in Ezekiel chapter 34, against this backdrop, um, we have a corruption of priests. So we've talked about a corruption of rule. Now you see there's a corruption of priests. We have this corruption of priests of Israel, those who were meant to lead God's people to peace and righteousness, to be among them, to minister to them, and yet it is plagued itself with corruption. And so what we have is the promise of God coming to shepherd his people himself. Ezekiel 34 records this. God will come to seek the lost. He will rescue the strayed and the scattered. He will strengthen the weak and bind up the injured. He will gather up. He will feed and he will lead to peace. And so this Bethlehem prophecy that none other than these priests and scribes and shepherds, quote, to the wise men in verse 6, tell us the nature of this ruler's role. He will be a shepherd among us. He will be a shepherd of life, the text tells us, and his going forth is of old. Notice this. This child, born, this child who is born his origins are not in this manger, for he is the one whose going forth is of old. And this is what the wise men's second gift shows us. Frankincense. 
Frankincense was often a, a costly ingredient that was used in perfume during the de- that day. And it was used specifically, not just for any everyday use perfume kind of thing, but it was for the most holy place in the tabernacle, Ezekiel, or uh, Exodus rather tells us. As a matter of fact, um, in Exodus chapter 30, verse 38, we see that this usage of frankincense is prohibited from common usage. Why? Because it was distinctive as a symbol of God. It is a symbol of the divine. And so the wise men in this gift show us this child is the good shepherd. He is God with us who's come to be among us that he might lead us to peace and life, that he might rescue, that he might seek out the wayward, that he might bind up the broken, that he might strengthen the weary. This is the one in whom our longing is found. And so, friends, because of the child in a manger, just like you need not question God's love cooling or growing cold or being fluid and fleeting, you need not question if God is distant, if he's removed from your life, if he's over you or if he's for you. Because the divine has come to be among you. Do you get that? God doesn't just save you by proxy from a distance. Aren't you glad that God walks with you when you walk with him, when you follow him? God has entered himself into humanity and into history. Dare even, God has entered himself into your humanity and into your history. Even in your waywardness and straying, he's come to gather you up and lead you to peace. That's good news. Behold the faithful love of our Father. He's come near to walk with and establish our every step. But listen, this is again not something that's just in the past, right? Revelation chapter 7 verse 17 tells us this, that it is the Lamb who will come and shepherd He will guide us to springs of living water. He will wipe away every tear. So if your heart longs for this, the gift is here. Let's celebrate. And so that leads me to the third thing the incarnation teaches us about love, that love triumphs. Love triumphs because God's anointed has come to put away sin. Um, The third gift gives us an indication of the role of this child because it is the gift of myrrh. Uh, Myrrh is, again, a costly ingredient, again, usually confined to Arabian Peninsula area, Uh, but it is used in specifically anointing oil Um, and embalming processes as well. And so it's indicated that in this gift, it's indicated of Jesus' holiness and dedication to God in becoming a sweet-smelling aroma of sacrifice to God on our behalf. You see, Jesus is, this Jesus who is born is the one who's come to die. 
And as Matthew 1 records, to save his people from their sins. You see, the baby born in the manger, not only is he the king of all, not only is he God who will shepherd his people from among us, he is the Christ who's come to die. He is our salvation. And the love of God finds its fullness in this, that he is making us who are condemned in sin the cleansed beloved because of his grace. Nothing you and I deserve to merit this. He has offered it of his own behalf. His love is faithful and self-giving. And so the wise men show us that Jesus is the Christ And so here's what this means for us. Not only do we need to worry if love is fleeting uh, and fluid or if God is for us or if he's distant, but then this gives us this indication that God has chiefly come for this reason, to take away your sins, to take away my sins. This is the greatest gift of love, changing hearts the giving of himself to break the power of sin. So, friends, whatever might feel that has gripped you need not hold you because the faithful love of God comes to expel the power of sin. Love is not accepting of sin, despite what the world might tell us, but it is expelling of it altogether. You see that? That just as love casts out fear, so does it cast out every iniquity that follows. And so if sin pleads loud against you, know that your Savior pleads even louder. And this is the gift in the manger. Sin holds no power over the beloved of God. And so... The wise men's worship model for us what the extravagant nature of this love to us, but it models for us an extravagant response that is only fitting for this extravagant love. So I want to give you in response quickly three responses to God's faithful love in the incarnation. The first one is this, and these are modeled to us appropriately and fittingly. And these three wise men. The first one is this. Come to the king. Come to the king. We must come to the king. Let us not be found indifferent to or opposed to the rule of this savior. For this is what those who should have known best were found to do. Might we not be found indifferent, but might we be found to be eager and persistent as they were to come to the king? Friends, is our love persistent? For this, is what, this is what the king has come for. That our love might be persistent. The second one is this, that we might that we would keep ourselves in the love of God. This is what Jude, uh, the instruction that that Jude gives um, to us. 
So does that mean that God's love is conditional, that like, like what I said earlier? All right, now, how can you say you're supposed to keep yourself in the love of God if you say that love is, the love of God is not fleeting or fluid? Does that mean that we have to make sure we maintain God's favor? No. God's love is a faithful love, but we have to position ourselves underneath it. We have to position ourselves before Jesus in response. It's possible for us to be misled. It's possible for us to be pulled away from the love of God towards what divides us. It's possible to position ourselves under the rule of something that, rather than giving life to us, drains life from us. And if we are careless, we will believe lies. We will follow after sinful desires and ungodly passions. And in a word, we will self-destruct and find ourselves pulled in a hundred different directions. So we must keep ourselves before this king. Keep yourself in the love of God. And then third, joyfully offer your life in ever-deepening worship in response. Every detail of it every role of your life, might it cause an uproar because of your dedication to the king? Might those of the world even be troubled by the costliness and the persistence of our dedication to this king? Our self-giving, benevolent commitment in return. So here, God reveals the greatest love for us in Jesus. Our love for God and for one another then is now a reflection of how we've received God's love in Christ Jesus. And so when you've truly received God's love, you value, you cherish, you adorn the things that God values with the highest esteem and your highest adoration and commitment. In a word, your love is persistent. Your love, yes, is costly. Your love is a testimony to the identity of this king. This is the response to God's extravagant love. He is still worthy. And so Christians have an enduring, extravagant love because Jesus has come, and he will come again. At the conclusion of each of these um, uh, sermons, uh, there's a time of testimony and tonight, or this morning rather, it's always dark in here, and I teach in here at night, excuse me. Uh, this morning, however, uh, we will hear from the Clarks. Frank and Wanda Clark have been a part of LifePoint uh, for the very beginning. They're early supporters of the LifePoint vision. They've been faithful members and a strong gospel influence to us. And as strong as their support and encouragement for LifePoint has been, their best investment to us has been their example of their commitment to one another in marriage. Uh, celebrating 59 years this past week and embarking on 60 years of marriage together. Um, so this morning, we've asked them to share a testimony of how love grows and strengthens to sustain marriage for a lifetime. Thank you guys for sharing.
Good morning, Life Point. We are the Clarks, Rankin Wanda. We became a part of Life Point from the beginning of the church's existence. The first few years, we would introduce ourselves as Life Point's token senior citizens. <laughs> Pastor Lane asked us to give a testimony about what we have learned about love in our life, specifically about loving one another for many years of marriage and loving the Lord for many years of faithful service. I recently had my 80th birthday. We celebrated our 59th wedding anniversary this past Tuesday. We began attending church together from the time we started dating at age 16. I had accepted Christ at age eight, and Wanda had made a profession of Christ at age nine. Thus, we have been a couple in Christ for 64 years. So I guess we meet the basic requirement to provide such a testimony. During those 64 years, the Lord has taken us many places and given us countless opportunities for service. Wanda is going to describe some of those life events and services. Frank and I dated for five years, three of which Frank was in college in Warrensburg, Missouri. We would go several weeks without seeing each other, but kept our love going through the U.S. mail. We were engaged Frank's senior year and married about a year later and moved to Chillicothe, Missouri. Frank taught at a small high school to the south of town and a whooping salary of $3,700 for the full school year. That next spring, the superintendent of Chillicothe Schools called me at my place of employment and indicated there was a teaching position that was open and thought Frank might be interested. This call led to four years of teaching in the Chillicothe High School. Our first two sons were born during this time. Immediately after marriage, we began attending church on Sunday morning, Sunday and Wednesday evenings. And it was not long until the nominating committee found us. I became the director of YWAs and GAs, and Frank worked with youth and taught Sunday school. During one of the evening services, I was convicted that my decision that I had made at the age of nine was not complete. Thus, I did accept Christ as my savior that evening at the age of 24. Frank worked on his master's degree during the summers and he was scheduled to complete that degree at the end of the summer term of 1964. In the spring of 1964, he received a call from the head of the Department of Business at, MS, at SMS asking him to apply for a teaching position. That call led to him becoming a member of the faculty at SMS, which is now MSU. However, it also led to the need for Frank to continue his education by working toward a PhD. We ended up in Springfield, where we continued to be very involved in our church activities. We both taught Sunday school, church training, BBS, and our third son was born soon after we moved to Springfield. After a couple of years, it came time to go to school again for that PhD. We went to Fayetteville, Arkansas. 
And during this time, we taught a class of newly married couples. We moved back to Springfield and continued our service in our church. Plus, Frank continued to work on his dissertation. In addition to teaching Sunday school class, classes, Frank was ordained as a deacon and later served as chair of deacons on three different occasions. We also served on a pastor search committee, a process that took about a year. At this time, or during this time, our fourth son was born. All of this was quite challenging, but just made our love for one another stronger and our trusting the Lord for guidance real. When some of our boys were approaching college, we decided that I needed to work full time. We prayed at length for this to happen, and one day I got a call from the pastor of our church and asked if, I'd be, if I would consider being church secretary. secretary. <clears throat> I thought, me, of all people, but when Frank came home, I told him and he said, we've been praying that you'd find a job. This just may be God answering our prayers. And that it was. And I worked there for eight years. During this time, we continued to serve our church with Frank teaching Sunday school and for several years served as the director of the Sunday school. In 1990, with 31 years of service, Frank decided it was time to retire from SMS. So we moved to Charleston, Illinois, where he became chair of the School of Business at Eastern Illinois University. We had been members of Southern Baptist churches throughout our marriage, but the choices in Charleston were very limited, so we ended up becoming a part of the Methodist Church. This change brought many challenges to our faith, but it ended up making us stronger in that faith, and indeed, we found several opportunities for service in this situation. In 1996, Frank was diagnosed with prostate cancer and elected to have surgery. There was much anxiety with this, but we had lots of support and lots of prayers. And God saw us through this crisis. After 10 years in Charleston, we decided it was time to move back to Springfield to retire, where Frank received an opportunity to teach at the College of the Ozarks for one year. He enjoyed his time there very much, but decided after 42 years of teaching, it was time to quit only to help our son in a business for 11 years before we fully retired. <laughs> While attending Second Baptist Church in 2004, we learned that a new church was going to be planted in Ozark under the leadership of Pastor Lane. We decided to become a part of that effort. And in the early years of LifePoint, we found new opportunities for service. Frank served several years as an elder and a member of the finance stewardship team. In the last several years, we served as greeters. In July of this year, we faced another challenge. I was diagnosed 
breast cancer. This information was initially met with great anxiety. However, that afternoon, I decided I can't do anything about this. It's there, I can't remove it, and I just said, Lord, you have to take care of this. I am ready to accept whatever. A great peace came over me that afternoon that I really can't explain. Yes, I did have a little pain and discomfort for about two weeks as I took radiation. But God truly answered the prayers of many. So, we have been together for a total of 64 years, and we don't know what the future holds. But we do know who holds the future. And out of our love for one another, and the Lord just keeps growing deeper and stronger. So, we have learned through events in our life that we grew stronger in the love for one another. And through service to our church, we increased our love and dependence on the Lord. And that love keeps on growing. What an example of faithful love to one another that flows from a faithful commitment uh, to their king. Uh, I'm going to invite the worship team to come uh, join me, and uh, will you? Uh, join me in a word of prayer.